Hello, I'm Al Head, Director of the Alabama State Council on the Arts, and I want to welcome you to Alabama Arts Radio Series. Each week we will be introducing you to some exceptional artists and other special people who make the arts happen in Alabama. Alabama is the home of a wide range of gifted and creative people who make important contributions to our unique cultural environment. Each week, members of the council staff will be visiting with some of these special people and introducing you to some of our state's most valuable human resources. So, for the next 30 minutes, sit back, relax, and enjoy Alabama Arts. Let it rest in peace and quiet love Walk softly on this heart of mine That's Jake Landers singing Walk Softly on This Heart of Mine. It's a song he wrote during his time as one of Bill Monroe's Bluegrass Boys. Jake, who passed away on February 13th, was a prolific songwriter and a member of the Alabama Bluegrass Music Hall of Fame. In 2015, he received the Folk Heritage Award from the Alabama State Council on the Arts. Jake and I recorded this interview at the Ritz Theater in Sheffield in 2013. And we share it with you tonight in memory of an important Alabama songwriter and a lovely man. Hi, this is Deb Boykin, and I am talking today with Jake Landers. He is a bluegrass singer, songwriter, and just all-around major figure in Alabama bluegrass. It's a pleasure to have you with us, Mr. Landers. Well, thank you, Deb. You can call me Jake. It'd be absolutely fine well, thank you in fact i'm more comfortable with with that all right well i, appreciate I, I don't that. i'm not sure that i ain't qualified for a mister <laughs> oh i'm sure you do <laughs> but it's an honor to call you jake can you tell me a little bit about where you grew up and how you started to play music well music wise i started singing you know uh, in the first grade at school and then when i was nine or ten years old i started playing guitar and I, I don't like to give myself credit from that standpoint, but I did it by watching other people. What they were doing with the guitar was playing you know, and making the chords and so forth. So I learned the uh, chord uh, positions and started playing along with my singing. This was in Large County, uh, Alabama. Oh, and oh, I might mention this. <laughs> along in that, that, at that time, I had a, an acquaintance who owned a, a service station, and he would ask me to come down and play and sing, and, and people would kind of pitch a nickel or a dime, something like that, in the hat. And so I made a little spending money like that when I was... How old <laughs> you know, were you when you were doing that? Oh, I, I was about 10 years old, something like that, That's 9 or good. 10. I had a good time with it. And then from there, you know, uh, different things, activities of the school and different plays and, and first one thing and another that are, that are happening in the community, churches. I used to play, some, play the church and, uh, and had a good time with that uh, as well, uh, learning a lot. Who were some of these people that you watched play guitar? Uh, my mother, primarily. She was a good guitar player, and she didn't attempt to, but I learned a um, unique way of playing with the right hand with the pick. 
and that was that I, you know, generally you speaking, well, you you play down, you play a string. G chord is like the fifth and the sixth string that you play every other lick and play straight down. And she would play down and up, play part of the rhythm down and play the rest of it up. So I learned to do that. It wound up being, in, in latter years, a guy by the name of Lester Flatt played that same lick, except he played it with a thumb pick and a metal finger pick. But I didn't, I didn't do that, and she didn't either. She used a straight pick, and that's what I learned to do. And, and I still do that even after all these years. I hadn't lost that cheating way of playing the rhythm, I guess. Well, it's nice to have a little bit of your mama in your rhythm playing, too. Well, it? it's, it, it's good, and it worked itself out there. There's little bitty things that you add as you go along in life. So anyway, I played through school and different activities is going on there. And then I went in the military when I was 17 and a half. And when I came back, a friend of mine or an acquaintance at that time, we later became dear friends and just like a brother, Herschel Sizemore, who was a super mandolin player who's known all over the United States now as being a super mandolin player. He and another fellow by the name of Roy Yarber, who was a five-string banjo player, and turned out to be a super good banjo player, and, and he worked on instruments along the way too, but they needed a guitar player. So that's how I got into the bluegrass business. All my early leanings were in country music. I, I liked Farron Young and, you know, and Ernest Tubb and all those, all those people. That's where my early thing in music was. But then I got hung up on bluegrass, and I've been there ever since, and, and it's like a bad disease. <laughs> Can't get rid of it once you get started in it. You got started in it then with Herschel Sizemore and Rural Yarborough, which is a pretty auspicious start. Well, if I was smart enough to know about auspicious, by I'd know more about the other part, but yeah, you know, uh, we started locally, radio work. The group was called the Tennessee Valley Boys when we first started, and then we changed it to the Country Gentlemen. Then we found out there's a group out of Washington, D.C., who was called the Country Gentlemen. So we had to change that name, so we went to the Dixie Gentlemen. And that's what we went by for a lot of years. We stayed together for 12, 13 years, I guess. Now, when did you start playing with those guys? Ah, uh, late 50s. Well, I could say late 50s. That's a good year, 57, 58, long in there. We didn't make no money, but we had a lot of fun. We traveled all over the, all over the country playing. Rule and Herschel and myself were the three who hung together. And we had different fiddle players. Al Lester was one of them. There's a guy by the name of Dick Crawford was another fiddle player that was with us, and his brother won fiddle contests everywhere, just about. Was that Roy Crawford? Roy Crawford, yes, true. Well, that's Dick's brother, and Dick won a, won a lot of them too, but not nearly as many as Roy. He wasn't quite the fiddle player that Roy was at that time. And then later on, after Al and Dick Crawford and some of the others, we run across a guy by the name of Vassar Clements. He moved here out of Florida. Herschel and I moved him up here, by the way, in a station wagon, of all things. 
And this was in the uh, late 50s, early 60s. We had some good music, and we had some some good times with uh, Vassar and, and uh, all the other guys. And then, you know, we had different ones on the bass, and Paul white uh, locally and let's listen to a song co-written by jake landers and vassar clemens called unforgotten one it's featured on vassar clemens album full circle it's late in the evening the sun's almost down Sweet lips on mine Her memory surrounds me And I can't prolong The tears for the unforgotten a little bit about what it was like to be in a band at that time did you play on the radio or travel around talk about that a little yeah bit. we we traveled around and first one place and then the other and and all over the south and uh, we worked a lot of radio shows as the dixie gentlemen like i say we had a lot of good times but now bluegrass i gotta tell you was not that popular back in those days because Presley came along, uh, whose first name was Elvis. Uh, and uh, he came along and it just about destroyed all music other than what he was doing, which is rhythm and blues or rock and roll, whatever you want to term it. Bluegrass, at that point in time, you know, you just, uh, the money just wasn't there. And all of us had a job on the side. Well, we played music on the side and had a job. And uh, that's the way we managed to make a living for the family. 
and the kids. And, and at that time, we were the only bluegrass band primarily in this part of the country. Now, there was another group who the leader of that other group was uh, was uh, Johnny Weems. Johnny just passed away recently, by the way. Johnny was a part of the country group Rusty and Dusty that used to be on the Opry. And they're another group, see, that people is just it's just kind of slid by them. Anyway, they, they had a group here, and I don't remember who all was in it. They did a lot of bluegrass stuff, too. But still, it just was not the same as, as the country music genre here. We were just playing because we enjoyed it. We liked it. And like I say, we, we got strung out on bluegrass as opposed to anything else. And like what we were doing, so that's what we managed to keep on doing. And we worked some things that we, probably we wouldn't have got done otherwise if we hadn't been in bluegrass. We wound up with Kelton Hurston, who was inducted as an honoree of some kind within the past month over at the, in Florence. He got us really the first job that we had, or the first contract, record contract, we had. And uh, that was good of him to do that. Now, when was that? This was in the early 60s, 62, 3, somewhere along in there. There was sort of a, of a resurgence of bluegrass around that time, wasn't there? People got a little more interested in it. Uh, yeah, and a little bit after that, maybe. I happened to be working with Bill Monroe at that time, and I worked with him, I don't know, five or six months, something like that. He reached a low point as far as his music is concerned, which became named bluegrass music because uh, Monroe was from the state of Kentucky. One of the uh, main grass crops, so to speak, of uh, Kentucky was bluegrass. And so that, that became the thing with him. And he started one of the first shows that he worked at that point in time. I was fortunate enough and blessed enough to work with him. Rule was with us. We worked at the University of Chicago. It was a show billed as Hootenanny. That's kind of the way things was back at that point in time. was was a Hootenanny and the Kingston Trio and all those folks. They they came out with something that it wasn't bluegrass, it was folk music. But then Monroe kept going, and he believed in what he was doing. And it's a good thing that he did, because otherwise it might not be in bluegrass today. That's right. He's really credited with being the father of yes. bluegrass music, isn't he? He is, but, you know, there's other people involved in that thing, too. Well, now, you're also a songwriter. At what point did you start writing songs? Well, you know, I started writing when I was about 17-year-old, 16, 17, probably 16, because the first song that I wrote was a, a song for, for my, who became my wife of 50-some-odd years now. That must have been a good song. <laughs> well... I don't know about that or if, if it had that impact on her or not. It was called My One and Only. And you know, the, Deb, the, the thing about it is it turned out to be the same tune 
is one of Loretta Lynn's records that came out a short while after that. And now, that's kind of a ironic thing, I guess. Uh, it's strange. A lot of the connotations are the same. But anyway, for our, I think it was the 50th wedding anniversary, my daughters framed that song, and it's on the, the desk there at, at home. Uh, yeah, I guess it did turn out pretty good. Sounds like it. What are some of the other songs you've written? Some of them are pretty well known. My wife's name is Joanne, by the way. And I wrote this while she was gone to the beauty shop. It's called A Secret of the Waterfall, and it was recorded. It was the first song I had recorded by a major group, who was the country gentleman. And, and strange as it may be, it still played. And that was in 71. It, it's not played near, nearly like it was, but it's, it's still played. So The Secret of the Waterfall, Last Request, which is Secret Sisters, that's the one that they helped me sing on. That's been pretty good. And, of course, the big one is uh, Walk Softly on This Heart of Mine that the Kentucky Headhunters had a big record on. Uh, Bobby Osborne has recorded uh, four or five in his, in his last few albums that he's re done. One of them is called I'm Going Back to the Mountains. And it tells a story about a, a guy who left the farm in all of Rocky soil that was on the farm up on the mountain and moved to town, got him a job at the factory, but wasn't the same. And people that live around him are all are strangers and seemingly they want to stay that way. And so if you think about subdivisions nowadays, you'll hear some of that in there. And I'm not casting any stones because I'm as bad as anybody else. I don't know my neighbors that live two blocks down the street. And it's not like it used to be when you lived in the country. Everybody knew their neighbors that lived three miles down the road and what they were doing and how many kids they had and how their kids were doing in school and all, all that kind of stuff. There had been some others that had been recorded, but they not nearly as big as these others were. So I'm, I'm blessed. I'm just uh, fortunate. Well, talk to us a little bit about what goes through your mind when you write a song. Do you have an idea and then follow it up, or do you just decide it's time to sit down and write? No, I don't do, I don't do that. A lot of people does, and it works for them. And some people don't, and naturally it won't work for them. There's a, maybe an idea that a that'll run through my mind. Now, I like The Secret of the Waterfall. That's what you call one of them killing songs. That's the secret of the waterfall because it winds up with the, the two people being put behind the waterfall. It just evolved. You know, I started, I had the course about uh, down by the waterfall where the waters run so cool, there no secrets ever fall from the lips of a fool. Then from there, why well, it, it evolved. It, it wasn't what I intended. It just happened. And and that's where a lot of mine has become. Now, now I, I'll say this, and this sounds egotistical, I guess, but I don't mean for it to be like that. If I start something and it, it doesn't 
sound right or I don't think it's going to be very good, I junk it. And those are what I call dogs. And I move on to something else if I'm sitting there and playing the guitar, you know, rather than than go ahead and writing that dog. But I will say this, Deb is not going to like everything that I write. And I'm not going to like maybe ideas that Deb has. That's okay, you know, nothing wrong mm-hmm. with that. But I don't think that I've ever written a complete dog. I discard it before I do that. And have you ever gone back to a dog and found something in it that works? I don't know about that, but I have, I've had the course of a song. Well, in this case that I'm thinking about, a year later, the verses came to me. And I thought, well, that'll work with that course. And so I wrote this song called uh, I'd Love to Ride the Big Train Again. And it's a song about the last passenger train leaving Sheffield. And I rode the last train that left Sheffield going to basic training in South Carolina. I think it turned out pretty decent. Uh, One of these days I'll, I'll let you listen to that. Oh, that'll be great. It tells a story about the last train left from Sheffield this morning. With it went a small part of me. Standing there in the morning air, I watched as it departed and relived a lot of boyhood memories. And so you regress back to a point in your life when you're a teenager. And in this case, uh, Dad and Grandpa ride the train with him down to Birmingham and back. Like I say, I'll, I'll let you listen to that one these oh, days. Oh, I love to hear that. Seems like the last verse is, there's things I'd love to do, like being young, and the old train I remember as it was leaving. So it's things that kind of plays on you, on your memory from that standpoint. Well, you've certainly been a good example for both playing and singing, and it's been really a pleasure to have you with us today. Thanks so much for for being on the show. Deb, it's, it's certainly nice of you to ask me to be on, and I'm grateful and honored to you. Well, thank you. We've been talking today with Jake Landers, who is a bluegrass performer, singer, and songwriter, just all-around bluegrass icon in this part of the country. I'm Deb Boykin. This program was brought to you by the Alabama State Council on the Arts and the Alabama Center for Traditional Culture. Technical production by Deb Boykin.
Tonight on Alabama Arts, we pay tribute to the late Jake Landers, bluegrass songwriter and musician and recipient of the 2017 Folk Heritage Award from the Alabama State Council on the Arts. In this 2013 interview, Jake describes how the songwriting process works for him. There's maybe an idea that will run through my mind. Now, I like the secret of the waterfall. That's what you call one of them killing songs. That's the secret of the waterfall because it winds up with the, the two people being put behind the waterfall. It just evolved. You know, I started, I had the course about uh, down by the waterfall where the waters run so cool. There no secrets ever fall from the lips of a fool. Then from there, why well, it, it evolved. It, it wasn't what I intended. It just happened. And, and that's where a lot of mine has become now. But first, the news. This week on Alabama Arts, we pay tribute to the late Jake Landers, bluegrass songwriter and recipient of the 2017 Folk Heritage Award from the Alabama State Council on the Arts. Now, I like the secret of the waterfall. That's what you call one of them killing songs. That's the secret of the waterfall because it winds up with the, the two people being put behind the waterfall. It just evolved. That's Tuesday, 8 to 8.30 p.m. Central on Troy Public Radio.